I'm here with actress, singer, producer, and now poet. Well, she plays one on TV. Haley Steinfeld is Emily Dickinson, and she's on AM to DM today. We'll see you on the timeline. <laughs>
Uh, he can also try a formal uh, recount, which is uh, a much more involved process. He would have to pay for it. Uh, one of the um, uh, a judge would have to oversee the physical recount of uh, the ballots. And then you have the possibility of another crazy situation uh, using a provision in the state constitution that hasn't been used for 120 years where the governor would call a special session of the uh, state legislature and they would hash out uh, who won the election. And re Republicans have super majorities in both chambers. So obviously Democrats are really wary of uh, the governor trying that in order to uh, um, uh, become the victor in the race. Interesting. Well, you tweeted yesterday that it was not really surprising at all that Bevin would not concede the race tonight. So why isn't it surprising? And why did he say he's not conceding? Well, Bevin was first elected in 2015, and uh, a lot of people here in Kentucky say that he was Trump before Trump. He's really bombastic. He insults people. He's in your face. He doesn't apologize for anything. And that's what kind of America got used to once uh, when Trump was elected. Um, so... Uh, he, uh, I think it would be fair to say that he's a, a stubborn guy. Uh, so, um, I think it wasn't really surprising that, uh, 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 when the margin was so narrow in terms of less than 1% of the vote, um, even though Bashir's at 5,000 votes, not really surprising that he would, he would not, uh, concede the race to Bashir. They just run a really nasty campaign, the two, um, Bashir calls pretty much everybody names uh, from judges to the media to protesting teachers, and he uh, releases vitriol on uh, Andy Bashir throughout the entire campaign. So uh, I guess it wasn't really surprising that he would come out there and say, well, you know, I've, I've lost the race. Let's just uh, you know, go uh, uh, wish the, the Democrat the, uh, the best. Now, there were a couple different uh, national narratives playing around uh, this race, in particular um, that of impeachment and if it would perhaps galvanize Republicans to turn out at the polls. Um, how did that actually end up playing out? Well, uh, Governor Bevin tried to nationalize the race. Uh, uh, Trump won Kentucky by 30 percent in 2016. He's still very popular. Uh, impeachment is not popular. Uh, the last uh, independent poll of Kentucky showed that only about 29 percent of the population supported impeachment, while uh, uh, about 56% of the population supported Trump. So on election eve, on Monday night, um, uh, Donald Trump went to Lexington, the second largest city in the, in the state, held a huge rally at an arena, had about 15,000 people there. He told everybody that they had to vote for, make sure that uh, Matt Bevin is elected and elect the whole slate of Republicans. Uh, it turns out on Tuesday that all the Republicans won uh, fairly easily, with the exception of Matt Bevin. So a lot of people went there and voted for uh, all the Republicans, for Attorney General and Secretary of State and all the statewide offices. But once they got to the governor's race, uh, they still just didn't like Bevin, and they voted for uh, Bashir, at least enough for Bashir to win. So uh, Trump said in that rally how embarrassing it would be if he came here to Kentucky and held this rally and still couldn't get Bevin across the finish line. So a lot of people are wondering if um, uh, this says something nationally about uh, Trump and trends going forward. I'd be reluctant to really draw any strong conclusions with that because Bevin is such a unique figure and was kind of uniquely unpopular. Unpo uh, uh, he's one of the least popular governors in the, in the country when it comes to approval rating. Uh, but uh, uh, there's another way of thinking that uh, uh, Trump went to Lexington in Lexington uh, had a huge turnout for uh, Democrat Andy Bashir. Bashir had a 37,000 vote margin in Lexington, uh, and he had a, almost a 100,000 vote margin in Louisville, the um, Kentucky's biggest city. So Trump coming to uh, Lexington might have uh, brought out a lot of people for the rally, but Democrats think that it really turned out their base and got them fired up to, uh, to defeat Matt Bevin. Uh, the chair of the Kentucky Democratic Party actually said that while 15,000 people were waiting around in line all day to see uh, Donald Trump uh, give a campaign speech, they had that many people out knocking on doors in Fayette County and throughout the state to actually get people to vote. So uh, that's one way of looking at, at what happened uh, uh, yesterday. Wow. Well, it seems like you have a pretty busy day ahead of you. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, here's a tweet from Politico. Gordon Sondland, Trump's ambassador to the EU, <clears throat> reversed himself in a new testimony to House impeachment investigators. He's now saying he believes Ukraine military aid was contingent upon the launch of politically motivated investigations. Here's the tweet from Miriam Elder. Sondland, come on. 
He says he didn't see the New York Times story on Giuliani and Ukraine, but did see the Solomon Hill story and didn't see Giuliani on Fox ever because I watch HBO. <laughs> I watch HBO. Well, joining us to discuss is BuzzFeed News senior politics reporter Miriam Elder. Good morning. Yes. Hi, good to see you again. All right, why is there now new testimony from Sondland? So Sondland was one of the first to testify. He uh, went before uh, the impeachment inquiry a few weeks ago, and a lot of others have given testimony since. And I guess he heard the opening statements or read the opening statements and realized that a lot of the I do not recalls that he had uh, told the investigators didn't really stand up when others told the truth. So uh, what do these new revelations reveal about how he may have contradicted uh, prior statements? So in his original testimony, he said that he had no idea why military aid to Ukraine was held up. This is like the core of the quid pro quo um, that Trump gave to Ukraine. And in this new addendum that he filed uh, to the impeachment inquiry, he says, oh, yeah, I remember talking to a specific aide to the president of Ukraine and told him that the military aid is being held up until you guys issue a statement saying you're going to investigate um, this company that Joe Biden's son was sitting on and uh, the 2016 election. Mm. So, Miriam, why is uh, why is his testimony today being seen as something even more damning than other testimonies uh, for Democrats? Well, I think that that episode that I just described is like a specific quid pro quo where you have an official in the Trump administration telling a Ukrainian official uh, this aid is being held up until you do exactly what the president wants to do, which is to investigate his political rival. It's like it's just laid out right there. Hmm. Um, so how are Trump and his allies responding to this? So in different ways, it feels like they're kind of trying to figure out um, like the response strategy that they want. They're toying with the idea that Sondland was a never Trumper, which is kind of ridiculous. He was a huge donor uh, to the Trump campaign. Um, then you had Lindsey Graham coming out and saying, it's BS, I'm not going to read it. But the main thing seems to be that they're trying to focus on um, calling Biden potentially before the impeachment inquiry. So it's just like a big distraction tactic. Mm. And speaking of distractions, how is the Trump White House planning to spin this today as the news continues to grow? Uh, the same thing. I think that they're going to really focus on, um, on you know, Biden's uh, alleged corruption. That's kind of the whole point of conspiracy theories is you want to say, hey, I know you guys are worried about this, but why don't you look over here? Now, I have a, a very important question for you. <laughs> Do you actually think someone watches uh, HBO? And if he does, which character on Succession do you think he's relating to right now? Um, I'm, I would say Sondland probably watches HBO, but I would be surprised if he only watches HBO. And uh, as I sat there for hours reading through this 370 pages of testimony, I definitely saw him as a cousin Greg. As he's kind of <laughs> I don't know, and as it were, and da da da. And then he like turns around, you know, and is basically trying to save himself um, in the most ruthless way that he can. Oh my God, Sondland is cousin Greg. That's amazing. Thank uh, you for that, Miriam. <laughs> thank you for indulging me. Um, Miriam, thanks for joining. All right. Well, later on, Alex and I chat with Senator Sherrod Brown about his new book. But up next, star of the new Blues Clues, Josh De La Cruz, joins me for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And today I'm joined by the star of the new Blues Clues and you, Josh De La Cruz. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you. Good to be here. It's so nice to meet the new face of what <laughs> I think is still one of the most popular children's shows in America. Oh so, my gosh. Great to have you. Well, we're going to play a little game before we hear more about your new gig. Yes. We're going to hit a button, read a tweet, and make cool. a little few jokes. Sound good? Cool. Yes. Perfect. I'll go first to show you right. how it's done. Skylar Marche, you tweeted, paid rent, so I'll be at home enjoying my purchase for the rest of the week. <laughs> Do you really Relate to this rent woes? Is this something you've battled in the past? Oh, absolutely! It's New York City. <laughs> that is like true. every every month is like you better stay home and enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> Do you have like a go-to like cheap food that you love? Pizza. Oh gosh, I'm a sense. vegan now, and 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 like I, every, even vegan pizza like every day. Get you, get oh, you there every single day. The fake bread. No, it's not fake bread. You can have bread. Oh, it's like that. The fake cheese. That's the cheese. The cheese. The cheese. <laughs> I love that. All right, you're up for the treats. Okay. <laughs> All right, Marie Brown Sugar, you tweeted, did you eat is my love language. Woo. I agree completely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you have a girlfriend. She's all over Instagram. Oh, my, my, my wife. My wife, now, sorry. My wife. No, no, don't, don't be sorry. You're married. Don't be sorry now. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Is that you all's love language? Absolutely. It's, it's our love language. And she also knows 
you know, if we're out and about, she's like, you want, do you want something to eat? Do you want a snack? I'm like, no, no, no. She's like, are you sure? <laughs> because we know how you're like when you don't. So she knows. You get hangry. She knows. I get hangry. I heard that's a genetic predisposition. Probably. Not Maybe everyone gets hangry. It's like a, Fili- I guess it's a Filipino thing. It could be. We love to eat. Oh, there we go. All right. Well, existings, you treat it. I miss being 16 and feeling wealthy with $200 to my <laughs> I feel like it was like 20 bucks made you feel rich back Absolutely. then. Absolutely. I got like $20 like a week for lunch and I was like, you're like, oh, what am I going to get? More pizza but not vegan. <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I was like, I'll starve that week. I don't care. <laughs> Just to keep the money? Just to keep the money. Wow. All right. That's a diet plan. That I you wish I do. saved like that still. Ooh, so many on. Well, tweet of the day, we're going to hit together and you're going to read. You okay. ready? Okay. All right. Boom. Tweet of the day comes from Eos Warid. Uh, y'all remember in school when you pretend to look for your homework when you didn't even do it? <laughs> <laughs> I read this earlier and was like, yeah, why did we do that? That was the dumbest thing ever. It was the show. It was like the teacher was right there. I was like, oh, gosh, I swear. And I don't know, I never had anything in folders. Oh. It was just like a mess in my in my. You were like digging. It was like a cave dive. (laughs) Like I think math is down there. Oh no, this is biology. Oh man, were you good at doing your homework? I was at times. I don't think I ever used this excuse. I would probably just not show up. I I would get sick. (laughs) I'd be like, oh sorry, not here. TV wasn't good enough at the time to stay home. I was like, I'd rather be at school. Oh my god, now it's just too much. And speaking of too much, let's talk about your show. All right, so did you watch Blue's Clues as a kid? I did. I watched it with my little sister, to be fair. So I was like seven years old. Um, and we didn't have cable at the time, so we would watch it at my aunt's house when we, she would watch us. So we would gladly sleep over, and then we would watch in the morning. Oh, that's nice. That's such a good memory. Is she yeah. excited for you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. She, she, was, she was super proud, and of course she was like, of course you got it, <laughs> which, is, which is like a read for sure. Um, but, you know, she, she looked up to me, and um, when I made my Broadway debut, she was like, you know, I'm just so proud of you because... Mm-hmm. You wanted something, and you went out there, and you did it. And you know, as a big brother, to know that your little sister looks up to you—that's that's a really great feeling. That's so touching. Yeah. And now it comes full circle because yeah, you're on yeah, her yeah. one of her favorite shows. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when she was watching, there were two hosts, Steve yes. and Joe, yes, and yes. they will be on the premiere. Yes, what was will. it like working with them? It's so cool. They're exact. Well, they're not exactly like they are on the show, but their their demeanor and what they do, like when they talk to you, all of their attention. And like all of a sudden, you feel empowered, and like you're, you feel like you're supposed to be there, which is incredible for somebody that works on a show like that. Yeah, yeah. And but it makes the kids feel good too. Oh, you know, yeah. They feel seen and heard. Oh, so for sure. I for think sure. It's going to be a needed, uh, I guess, behavior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, what's different this time around for the show? So, like traditionally, the show was. 2D, 2D animated. And now, because it's almost 2020 and we have the technology, mm-hmm. um, Blue is furry and super fluffy and magenta is back. So both of them are 3D animated. Their faces, the, our animators at Nine Story are able to animate such nuance into mm-hmm. their reaction. So she's sassy, mm-hmm. she's funny. It's oh like- Oh my God, she's sassy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there, there are like jokes that I'll tell that she doesn't think are amusing. Really? That, that she just like, <laughs> It's hilarious. Does that get to you not being able to make a dog uh, laugh? Absolutely. Well I, well, I have a dog at home, and he usually gives me side eye whenever, like, he doesn't want to kiss you, or... You and the dogs. It's the dog. You're a dog comedian. Know. Wow. <laughs> We're going to work on that. Well, we have a tweet here from Kay Alipio who says, watching the new Blue's Clues on YouTube at 12.30 a.m. because I just remembered that the new guy is a Filipino. Yeah. Gotta love the diversity in television now. I'm so proud of more Filipino representation in American television. Yeah. So that tweet is absolutely correct. You're bringing some much-needed representation to children's television. How does it feel? It's cool. You know, I, I feel so honored to be able to, to do this show and uh, a show that where they didn't cast me because I was Filipino, mm-hmm. they cast me because of what I brought to the table and who I am. And oh yeah, also I am Filipino because you know, growing up when I was watching stuff on TV, there were only there were a very small handful of times where their someone's nationality didn't have to do with the part they were yeah. playing. Like uh, I've been, I go back to Rufio, mm-hmm. you know, Dante Vasco, where he is a Filipino, but. In the movie, he's just a kid, and you know he's heartbreaking, and it's amazing, and uh, we don't usually get that. It's usually like a characteristic, uh, a caricature of a stereotype. Yeah. And to be able to do this and bring positivity, where I'm not a violent person, it's, I, 
You it's know. amazing. It's and it's amazing, amazing for people uh, like the new little sisters out in the world yeah, that are like yeah, yours yeah. that are able to see you. Yeah. And, you know, she gets to have more representation like you to look up to bigger brothers. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. special. All right, before you go, there's yeah. one thing I have to address. And there's a treat that goes with it because it's a treat yeah. for everything. Okay. Ever since I found out the Blues Clues guy is hot, my life has never known peace. So when this was announced, Twitter exploded, and we were a show on Twitter, so we were watching this happen, and people were super excited about it. What does it feel like to be a thirst trap to the internet now? You know, uh, for the record, my wife thought I was a thirst trap before it was official. Oh! Uh, wow! <laughs> Confidence! I live! Oh my god! No, but you know, it's, it's something that I never think about. I, I never thought about. When I mm -hmm. found out about this, I, w I woke up, I had morning eyes, and my phone was blown up from my sisters. like, oh my god, is everything okay? Mm -hmm. And I look up, they're like, have you seen this? And I see the picture, I see the tweet, and I'm like, no! <laughs> I mean, it's so flattering, you know, because it, it feels good to think that people think that you're handsome. Yes. Um, and, you know, I was looking particularly pretty good that day, so, I, you know, I, it keeps That's me. That's great. I feel like it's not going to go to your head because it already no. went to your head because of what you said about your wife. Oh like, my she God. already saw me as a thirst trap. Oh, my gosh. She, I, it, she, it, I love her to death. I <laughs> she love sounds her to like death. a great person. Maybe bring her back next time. Oh, absolutely. We'll play, we'll play a little game or absolutely. something. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, so and congratulations on the new, so the new role. Very exciting. You can see Josh on Blue's Clues and You when it premieres November 11th on Nickelodeon. Up next, see Alex in my conversation with Senator Sherrod Brown. Writer Connie Schultz tweeted, The look on Senator Sherrod Brown's face as he pulled out the first copy of his new book is everything. I've always said my husband's default button is set to joy. After a decade of working on it, Desk 88 is out November 5th. Not to brag, but I'm getting the first signed <laughs> copy. Senator Sherrod Brown is with us now to talk about his new book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Welcome. Thanks, Alex. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Thanks uh, for the intro. Quoting my wife. I mean, yes. you know, cool. a review from maybe the toughest but most important crowd. Yeah, so. I mean, Con Connie has some of the best. Connie Schultz has some of the best presence on social media, as you know. Yes, she's <laughs> great. You found that. It's also nice. You know my dogs. You know my grandson. <laughs> grand yes, yes. You know way too much. <laughs> Does that make you nervous that she's so it, it does make me a little <laughs> people come up they'll come up to me in the street and say how's walter my or, we have this new rescue that's about this big uh -huh. somebody just we found in the streets of east cleveland a friend of ours and we oh. had an older dog and the older dog we think lives longer if you have a younger dog and mm -hmm. i don't know that theory works but anyway but people say how are franklin and walter like they're my kids or something I, they, I love they it. kind of are yeah oh my <laughs> i love that your wife is so open but let's jump into okay. your book because okay. we can't just take up all the time on her okay. today so the centers you write about carved their names into desk 88 yeah. uh, how did you decide which ones to write about and what was surprising about it, what you learned? it started my first month in the senate when the 10 freshmen were figuring out where to sit by seniority um, the desks available and and you're not, there are no bad seats in the Senate floor. So I, I, did, I pulled, started pulling out desk drawers because a senior senator told me that a lot of senators carved their names in their desk. And I pulled it out and I saw Hugo Black of Alabama, George McGovern, Al Gore, and then it just said Kennedy. And I asked, Ted Kennedy was still alive. I asked him to come over to my desk and I said, which brother is this? He said, well, it's gotta be Bobby's. I have Jack's desk. Mm. So I looked at these senators and all of them played a significant role in a couple of ways. One in, in progressive legislation, whether it was collective bargaining or civil rights or, or Medicare, but also they, 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 all, they all sort of led in a message of hope. Mm. And even though these eight senators, they're all, they all look like me, they're all white men. There were not much of anybody else in those seven decades in the Senate, it's clear to me that that this would this this book would be would there be more progressive stories if there had been more people that looked like you in this book and mm. not just not just white men that ran yeah. the Senate for two hundred years. For mm. sure. Well, one of the uh, figures that you mentioned is, of course, Hugo Black. So, how did you uh, think about bringing a contemporary lens um, to writing about some of these figures? Of course, uh, Hugo Black was uh, in the KKK, yep. and how did you think about? Uh, you know, balancing their legacy without lionizing. Well, that and I, and I, I absolutely didn't. I, I, I pointed out the flaws in every one of them. Mm -hmm. The big part of the Hugo Black chapter is his evolution from a KKK member to being FDR's favorite progressive Southern labor senator, if you will, to Supreme Court to the point where he evolved so much that 
the Brown v. Board of Education, the first major court decision on integration, um, that Hugo Black was burned in effigy at the law school he graduated from. He had gone so far in the minds of a lot of white Southerners. So I, I in, in no way papered over or yeah. painted over um, any of the flaws of senators, but I also understand that that if you, you one of the things you learn from history is that that um, that it does, as Dr. King says, the arc bends mm -hmm. towards towards progress, towards justice. Um, it's, it's in question now with this president, mm -hmm. but it will in the end, and that's why 2020 matters so much. And in launching into the reason I'm hopeful is looking at this history in Desk 88. That come 2020, we have a good chance of seeing a new progressive era launched. Mm -hmm. This time with a lot of women and people mm -hmm. of color clearly will be the reason we defeat Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think there'll be a lot more women and people of color in the Senate and the House mm -hmm. as we as we move forward in another progressive era. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this a bit, but you said this book is mostly about white men because that's who's been leading our country for so long. But as we enter 2020, what responsibility do white men in the Senate and the government more broadly hold in assuring that people that look like us have seats at that table? There, the Ohio Democrats are now building a farm system where we're recruiting and training a whole lot of women and people of color. I spoke, Connie and I spoke to this group in Columbus the other day, Lead Ohio, where there were probably 75 people in the room and up at 60 of them were either women or they're either women of color or men of color. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they're either white women or women of color or men of color. And um, the diversity, even in a state like Ohio, which is not changing as dramatically as North Carolina or Georgia or Arizona or Nevada or Colorado, but even with that, Democrats are understanding. And, you know, we, we, we both, people like me both lead and get out of the way, um, understand that to build, to build the kind of movement we want this kind of progressive movement that these eight senators um, were part of intermittently, irregularly, I guess, um, unevenly is a better term. Even with that, um, we, we can build towards that future. Mm. Now, you recently uh, told a reporter that you support the impeachment of Trump, um, but your office followed up saying that you've not, made, made, not yet made a decision on removal. Um, have you made a decision? Why haven't you? Made yeah, I, I don't think I should. I, um, I have spoken out against Trump from day, I mean, from the campaign in 16, and I've called him a racist and a misogynist and, and, and a liar and all the things he is. Um, the, the process, I, I think Pelosi has done it right. I think Pelosi, I point out in Desk 88 that Lyndon Johnson was the greatest legislative leader probably in history. Why well, I think Pelosi is as good or better. I mean, she's done this right. I trust her to do this right. Once they impeach, if they do, and I think they should impeach, and the impeachment is is comparable to an indictment in a court of law. And then the president can defend himself and his lawyers and all of that in the Senate during the trial. And I am one of 100 jurors mm -hmm. as a U.S. senator. I took the oath in January of, of 19 for this term, my third term. Um, part of that oath is to follow the rule of law in the process. So I, I have very strong feelings about this president, but he has the right to defend himself in this court of law. And I hope that every Republican and Democrat goes into this with an open mind. That, that I was asked at Beachwood High School the other day about this and, and about public pressure. And I said, once you're in this court of law, the Senate making this decision on removal of the president from office, something the Senate has never done, you have to treat it. You don't listen to public opinion. You don't get swayed by social media or letters or calls or conversations or by your spouse. You listen to the evidence and you make a decision. If we do that, I, I, I just hope my Republican colleagues are willing to be that open-minded mm -hmm. just to actually listen to the evidence and make the decision that not on that, not on their politics. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of public pressure, you know, earlier this year, there was some pressure for you to run for office in this very wide-ranging Democratic primary. <laughs> Do you regret not jumping into the race today? No, I, um, I made the decision based on, in part, if to run for president, you've got to want it more than anything in the world. And I, I've not had anybody that's known me my whole life has never heard me say I want to be president. And I never had that ambition. All right. So before we let you go, we have a question that we may need to define for you. But <laughs> you have five grandkids. Have they used the phrase OK Boomer on you yet? Um, no, they've not. <laughs> but, 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 Do you I, know I, what I know, that means? No, of course I did. I, I actually, when I spoke at Beachwood High School, I started off by saying, okay, boomer. Really? I did. Really? And then I said, and I said, and you, this, you may be the, I may be the last boomer you ever have to listen to. Yeah. And I started with that and they actually, I think they laughed. I'm not sure they thought I was I totally laughed. getting it. But anyway, <laughs> but no, my grandkids, the, the six of the seven, I mean, there's seven now, six That's of the seven are under seven and the 11 year old hasn't used it, but, um, but I'm sure he will.
All right. Well, All right. thank you so cool. much for taking okay, that, that question. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks. Enjoy it, Alex. Thanks. Uh, Desk 88 <laughs> is out now. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a tweet from Sharon. Got Anthony Ramos' new CD, The Good and the Bad. Love it. Great beats, lyrics really spoke to me. Highly recommend it. Joining me now is Anthony Ramos, one of the Grammy-winning stars of Hamilton, and a star is born, whose new album, The Good and the Bad, is out now. Welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes. And congratulations. This is your first full album. So talk to me about what was going on in your life um, as you were writing it. A lot. A lot. Uh, Yeah, it was, uh, (laughs) I mean, I think uh, it was, this was just a culmination of things that happened over the over the years. I think this wasn't something that was just happening uh, in the now. I think it was just like I had so much inside of me that needed to come out, and mm. I, I didn't. I've just never made the space or given myself the space or given myself the time to to, to say these things. And finally, uh, I kind of was just like, "Yeah, I think I'm gonna write an album." Now's and, the time. Uh, and and yeah, and it came out, and it ended up being this narrative about a guy who thought he needed to leave home to figure out who he wanted to be in life, and goes on this journey. He goes through the good and the bad in between, and realizes at the end that you know all the answers he ever needed in life were right in front of him at home but uh but the lyrics are i had to i had to leave to see how good i had it Mm. i had to go to know how good i had it so would you have me if i come back home and then it's like been my life Mm -hmm. uh, for real were you thinking that that was the emotional journey that you wanted to take your listeners on no, I didn't know. Really? That, yeah, it was kind of, I didn't know what the emotional journey was going to be when I first started writing this album. I mean, this, this narrative came later on. This was like, uh, so uh, my, one of my best friends and executive producer, Will Wells, and I, we went to L.A. Um, I got signed like in, at the top of the year this year. And then like days after signed the deal, boom, we were out to L.A. And, um, and we were out writing and we wrote 21 songs in 30 days. That, that blows my mind. Yeah, it was that crazy. That blows my mind. Yeah, and then yeah. we just like picked 12. Well, we had 14, then we took two out and then we had 12 and we kind of just took index cards and we put them on the table at our studio and we're like, all right, where's the story here? Hmm. And then we just started flipping them around and we're like, all right, okay, here, this is the, the guy leaves home, he says bye to his family, then he goes to the industry party, it's his first thing, mm-hmm. then he meets somebody, they have a long night, boom, then they take a spontaneous trip, now they're making passionate love, boom, now she pumps the brakes, she's like, no, you're not in a relationship, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you have this down to a science yeah, right now? Yeah, and it was yeah. kind of crazy, it was like, and we, and the, the story just ended up and then, and then, you know, and then we, we ended where where we ended up, and then he eventually is like, you know, she leaves, and he talks about the power of a woman's love, and mm. and uh, and then we go on to 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 to, to talk about loneliness because I feel like it's just something that uh, I think we don't just we don't talk about mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. and um, or at least I didn't, and then uh, his friend pulls him out of the rut, then in the good and the bad, the title track, he's reflecting on what has gone on on this journey, and he realizes and come back home like, all right, maybe I think I did everything I needed to do on this trip. <laughs> I think I should go home. Well, obviously, there are a lot of really deeply personal elements in it. And so how does it how does it differ when you're out on tour because you're touring now? Yeah. Um, how is it different performing something like this versus, you know, performing somebody else's material on Broadway? Yeah, I mean, it's personal. So personal. Like this is like yeah. and it's, it's vulnerable. These are like things that I um, some of these things I'm singing about. I've never shared with people who are close to me. Mm. And then I was just like, oh, here, let me just give all my secrets on this album. And uh or, or a lot of them, rather, right? Not all of them. Not can't, all. Of can't the give them all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, but uh, but it's it's different because these are my words. This is my story. Um, you know, with the help of some amazing songwriters in LA as well, I mean, like in 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 New York. Like this is these 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 are my ideas, my words. My this is my life that mm-hmm. I'm sharing with people night after night. This is not me putting on a costume and singing or, rap, or saying some words that that. Uh, uh, someone else wrote that inspired me, but are still someone else's words, right? Like mm. I think this is this this is this cuts a little deeper than that. Well, you mentioned secrets and having people who are close to you find out things about your life. Ha- have, yeah. Has there been any instance where somebody learned something about you who was close to you and then reacted to it from off this album? Has it happened yet? Uh, I don't know. I think people have, have been like, I didn't know you felt that way, mm-hmm. right? Like I have a song called Woman, um, and it's all about. 
it's all about the power of a woman's love, mm -hmm. you know, and it's all about how, you know, I want to be the ground that you land on, right? Like I say, I want to be the ground you can land because, you know, a woman's love, you, anything can, you can drop anything on that surface and her love will sustain, right, o mm -hmm. over anything. I think it's the most powerful love, right? I want to be the rock you can stand on. This is the strongest surface. I wish that this love will go on and on and on. It's like this, this, this uh, never-ending kind of love. Like the women who have mentored me in my life, all of them, like um, they've had this unconditional love for me, but I'm not around like we planned on. Right? It was mm -hmm. like people, uh, people are, I think, more shocked at the confessions, mm -hmm. right? Like figure it out. Like, hey, no, yeah, everybody, I do go through loneliness. Like even as an adult now, in my life right now, I have problems dealing with myself in the silence. Mm -hmm. They're like, I think people are like kind of like they feel like a window uh, a bit or like th they feel like a crack they see a crack in the door now they're like oh well maybe if he walked through it hopefully I can yeah I, okay I guess he feels that way so yeah I, I felt that way too because um because yeah I'm like it's, this album is just about like yo I'm like I'm so I'm such a work the, the 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 bridge right and and figure it out is I'm making me a promise to admit my problems ain't saying I'm gonna solve them but I'm making progress mm -hmm. I think that's the line of the album for me, right? Like, that's a message for you. You know, it's like, I'm a work in progress, you know, and it's all right if you are too, you know what I mean? Well, in addition to this album, you are working on a lot of things right now. So you also yeah. have the, uh, the movie adaptation of In the Heights. Um, what was it like actually getting to shoot on location in Washington Heights? It was amazing. Yeah, shooting that film on, on location was, was awesome because you, you can't fake it. Like, there are people running their motorcycles through the shot. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, people, hello, we're busy here. Right? Yelling at us from their window, this better be the last shot. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. hilarious. Like, it was like, but this is, it was real life happening around us in the neighborhood that we are singing songs about. And, and you know, the, the heartbeat in the neighborhood is in the movie, you know? And, yeah. and, and I'm just grateful that we didn't, uh, we didn't go somewhere else and try to make that place in another place. We went there, we did it there. Um, you know, people from the community are in the film. Like, you know, like people, like the, the background actors are from Washington Heights. You know, the dude plays Graffiti P, you know. Uh, uh, my boy Noah, you know, he's, he was started out as a dancer and Noah got the part because they were just like, yo, you fly. <laughs> like, you know, and he's from the hood, he's from, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm not from Washington Heights, but I'm from Brooklyn and I grew up in a, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood a lot like Washington Heights. So uh, this movie means a lot to so many of us, mm -hmm. especially in the Latinx community. We get to tell this story that I feel like, um, I feel like we haven't really had the opportunity to tell um, mm -hmm. until now. And the character you're playing is Isnavi, who was yeah. originated by Lin-Manuel Miranda yeah. on Broadway. Is it intimidating at all to have to step into his shoes? Nah, not really, <laughs> nah, because, because he, didn't, he didn't put that pressure on me, mm -hmm. you know? He didn't, there wasn't that, right? It was nothing but support, it was nothing but love. He'd be on set all the time, and it was actually, I actually loved it more when he was there, mm -hmm. because it was like I could get more insight into what was going on in this guy's mind, right? Provided I'm making him my own, but, you know, it was, it's always nice to have the writer there, mm -hmm. and Kiara, who wrote the, the book. Kiara is also a producer on the movie, and she was there every day, so it was nice to have them on set all the time and be able to pick their brains and talk to them about anything mm -hmm. that kind of felt like, hey, can I change this? What do you think? What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Blah, 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 have that banter. And then John Chu is brilliant. Mm. You know, John Chu is like one of my favorite humans, not just director, but one of my favorite humans on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't feel any pressure, um, but, uh, but it was long days. Well, I, can, I would imagine that. Long yeah. days, yeah. long days. Well, in addition to Lin-Manuel, um, you've also worked with some other really iconic artists like yeah. Lady Gaga, uh, Spike Lee, of course. Um, is there anything that you've learned uh, from working with them? Yeah, um, work hard. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing great happens uh, without hard work. And, uh, and it's also like be true to yourself. Like the, the common thread between all of them are these people are who they are and, um, and they, they are not sorry about it. Mm -hmm. Like it, 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 was, it was awesome. You know, I remember, you know, being on set, Stephanie was like, yo, remember, remember that like those times, she said, I remember the times where I was like lugging my keyboard and playing two or three gigs in a night. And like, you know, and just remember, like, like cherish these moments, right? Mm -hmm. These are the moments that are making you who, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, these are like, but what I got from it was these are the moments that are making you who you will become and who you are, right? Mm -hmm. and like, these are the moments that are shaping you. And with Lynn, I remember one time Lynn was like, we were, we were in rehearsal and Lynn goes, I cracked a joke and I said something and I thought it was like a little ghetto or whatever. And I was like, ah, I'm like laughing. I'm like, maybe I should change the way I speak. I think I talk a little ghetto, too ghetto. And he's like, nah, Papa, you don't ever need to change the way you speak. You just need to make sure people understand you. Mm -hmm. 
And that hit me hard, you mm. know? And Spike mm -hmm. is a beast. Spike is from Brooklyn. Spike mm -hmm. did his first film, $175,000, um, two uh, six-day work weeks on She's Gotta Have It. Like, he's the definition of, like, grinding it out and, and, and paving the way, right? And, and making a way for artists like uh, me and so many like me, right? Like, who can, who now have a, a a, a seat at the table, right? Mm -hmm. Spike had to kind of yeah. bum rush his way to the table so that some of us can have an easier path to it, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you uh, yeah. about all of this, so thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. This is so awesome. The Good and the Bad album is out now, and you can see Anthony live on the Good and the Bad tour through November 19th. Up next, you'll see Chantal's conversation with Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> A tweet from Presslaw. What a first episode of Dickinson! Haley Steinfeld was amazing as always. Thank you, Apple TV, for making that show possible. Here with me now is Oscar nominee Haley Steinfeld, the executive producer and star of the new series Dickinson. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. And congrats on the new show. Thank it's you. so good. Thank you so much. You play the great fame poet Emily Dickinson. Tell us about the show, because there's a little bit of a twist to it. There is a bit of a modern twist, mm. if you will. Um, Emily Dickinson was completely misunderstood in her time. So our show sort of looks at her life through a more modern lens and, and asks the question of, can we understand her better in our time? So it's, uh, it's driven by the themes of her poetry, and, and those are quite a few, consist of quite a few. And um, every emotion and possible feeling under the sun is... is in that poetry, therefore, in this show. Awesome, and we have a clip. Let's take a look. Emily, wake up! Oh! You have to go fetch water. It is four o'clock in the morning, Lavinia. I'm writing. Mother says you have to. I did it yesterday. Why doesn't Austin do it? Austin is a boy. This is such bullshit. <laughs> I mean, how much did you know about Emily before taking on the role? Very little, actually. And, and you know, the reality of what we do know about her factually, what's written, uh, is, you know, not... Uh, I mean, there is very little that we know is actually true. Mm -hmm. um, but I had come across some of her poems in high school, but that was really the extent of it. So I was uh, so excited to be able to dig in deeper to her work, and I'm, I'm even more excited to introduce her, her poetry to, you know, people that might not know it. Yeah, speaking of digging in, you executive produced this. So yes. what was it like being, you know, stepping outside from in front of the camera and now taking more of a, you know, creative impact role into this, you know, project? Yeah, it was uh, a wonderful experience. I mean, not only doing this with the other incredible producers involved uh, and filmmakers, um, Apple TV Plus, obviously, this is their first experience in the TV space and mine as well. So, you know, being on this journey together has been really, really great. Uh, but it's been, you know, a huge learning curve. I've always been interested in producing. I've worked with some amazing producers that have inspired me. And um, the idea of, of being a part of certain, you know, decision-making processes and, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's been very exciting. And this is something I care a lot about. And, and I've been, you know, it's just been wonderful to be a part of helping this thing really come together from the beginning through the middle to the end. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many interesting parts of the story. Emily is in love with her brother's fiance, and she's right. a, who's a woman. And so, what was that like approaching this? You know, and what did you want the takeaway to be for LGBTQ viewers, and what did you want that impact to be? Well, one thing I love so much about this show is it's. It's about not putting people in a box. And, you know, in, in the time that Emily was alive, they didn't necessarily have the, uh, the language that we have now, the um, terminology mm -hmm. that we have now. Um, and all she ever wanted was to be seen and to be heard and understood. And, and the one person in her life that saw her and loved her for who she was happened to be a woman and then later happened to marry her brother. Um, so it's quite complicated, but uh, I think it's a beautiful relationship and I'm so happy uh, to have played, been able to play a relationship that is so um, genuine and authentic and, and intimate and real uh, and 
Yeah, I think it's really special. Yeah, and the chemistry there is so beautiful. And, like, the casting in itself is just, like, mm. amazing. Like, was Khalifa's in this project? Right. Like, how did he <laughs> come on board the project? And what do you think fans will take away from seeing him on screen? Ooh, well, uh, he, Elena Smith, our creator mm. uh, and writer of the show, uh, kind of always had Wiz in mind. Um, <laughs> she wrote in death as a character, and death is something that Emily talks a lot about in her poetry. And she talks about it as a new form of life, a, d a different form of life, you know, a place that you can go and be creative and free and live in a world of creativity. Um, and so she wanted whoever was going to play death to represent just that. And Wiz is incredibly talented and, and has the best sense of humor and is incredibly creative um, and, and represents this world of, of fun and danger and um, excitement. And so I, I think that fans will love seeing him in the show. He's, he's a great actor. Yes, he is. Um, and did a wonderful job, and it was really fun working with him. Yeah, I was very impressed by him. I was like, okay, Dad, right? really yeah. good. And Jane Krakowski plays your mom. I mean, yes. how did you not laugh on set every day? Like, oh, was I did. It like, I mean, not breaking, like, did you break oh, character all a lot? the time. I'm okay. the worst. In fact, I was just <laughs> doing something with my cast, and we got the question, who, who breaks? the most and I was like it's definitely it not you. me I was like, like it's her <laughs> um yeah the Jane is is amazing and of course comes from uh you know the world of of comedy and and she has mastered that um she brings something to this role though that I think nobody has really seen her done which is really exciting and uh it was very hard. There were moments where it was very hard to keep it together. Uh, but the first couple of weeks were, were kind of our time to figure out what we were doing and what the comedic timing of this show was. Because it is, you know, I think a lot of the humor comes out of the tragedy, um, the reality of these tragic events that they went through. Uh, but but Jane is is so awesome and very funny. Yeah, absolutely. You work with so many amazing people of your career. It's been nine years since True Grit and Damn. your evolution, right? So like, how, you. when you work with people like Jane Krakowski and all these amazing people in your career, what are some things and nuggets they leave you with or what are some of the community that you like kind of like create to keep you sane in this industry? You know, one thing about Dickinson is I really do feel like we have formed a family. And I, and I feel very lucky that I've had that. I feel that way about a lot of projects mm -hmm. I've worked on because I've worked with some wonderful people. Um, but there was, there's something about this one in particular. And I think Jane specifically creating this very complex mother-daughter relationship um, and just spending time with her on and off set. She really is, she's such a neat woman and and I've I've just learned so much by being around her and and picking up on on little things that she does here and there. She's a good person and I think that above all is is so important. Um very professional and so kind. Uh but I just feel so lucky that that I do feel like we've got a little family uh, dynamic going on on set. Absolutely. Speaking of family, I mean, you were a part of an amazing franchise of two of the three Pitch Perfect series, mm. and there's been little, you know, rumors about maybe a fourth one. Is so that something that you like to be a part of? <laughs> of course. <laughs> that was so much fun for me. I, I, two of my passions in one, uh, in one under one umbrella. Uh, that's always a dream. So I, I will never forget seeing that first movie in the theater and being completely obsessed with it. Um, and then being in the second and the third was, you know, quite yeah. quite an honor. Absolutely. And you also voiced Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man yes. uh, into the Spider-Verse, which yes. was like, oh my gosh, like it won the Oscar earlier this year. What was it like being a part of that project that really had this great conversation about diversity and yeah. seeing like this beautiful like representation on screen? I mean, again, another privilege truly uh, to be a part of not only a story that everybody knows and loves, but a completely different take uh, and to be a part of something visually so stunning um, of course when you're doing it you don't really know what it's gonna you don't really ever know what anything's gonna turn out <laughs> to be like but um, that you know the recording process of that hope happened over a, a large span of time and, and I was on tour at one point I was filming another movie and so you know that sort of thing I just remember seeing it for the first time and thinking this is just so groundbreaking and uh, it was so awesome to see all of these adorable little kids dressing up as as Gwen Stacy and Miles Morales uh, for Halloween. Um, that was, you know, that's always, that feels like such a huge payoff when I you've know. reached that. It, it was so beautiful to see, just visually, just so stunning. Mm. And so all these projects, you, you have your hand in so many different pots and <laughs> also your new music you just announced, you have new music you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I, I have been working on it for quite some time. And I actually, when we wrapped season one of Dickinson, I went home to LA and uh, I 
I've been writing for a while, mm-hmm. um, but that was kind of my my chunk of time to finish what I'd started uh, <laughs> and continue. And it's um, you know it never it never really ends, which I think is the beauty about music and writing. Uh, but I guess at some point it's got to like be wrapped up, which is what I'm doing right now. Uh, and I'll have new music out early next year. Absolutely. That is so exciting. Is there anything that's inspiring you, anything you're binge watching, anything that helps you with your creative process? Ooh, um, there is so, there's so much out there right now that is so great. Uh, I haven't, I haven't binged anything in a minute. Okay. I have some, I have a lot of catching up to do with that. Uh, I don't know. I think there there is so much happening. There is there there are artists that are making music sort of outside of their genre and crossing over. There are no rules, you know, and and anybody can really do anything if they if they set their mind to it. And I think that this generation is a perfect example of that. And I'm truly inspired by that. Absolutely. Well, keep on doing it, Haley. Congratulations on this new show. It's so good. Yay, thank you so much. <laughs> All right, y'all. Dickinson is available now on Apple TV Plus. Up next, it's more AM to DM. Karamo is the self-love guru from Netflix's Queer Eye, but today he's here with his son, Jason Brown, to talk about their new book, You Are Perfectly Designed. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank Glad you. to be here. Yeah, so yes. what made you guys want to write this book together? So I Am Perfectly Designed is actually a mantra that I would tell Jason and his little brother when they were kids because they got bullied, um, because we didn't have a lot of money, their father was gay, they came from a broken home, even though it wasn't broken because their mother and I are still close. Skinny jeans. Um, yeah, skinny, his skinny jeans. <laughs> the skinny, I mean, the skinny like, jeans, it was skinny real. Jeans, yeah, everything. And and one day he said to me, you know, I wish I was someone else and I wish I had a different life. And I was like, never say that. Be happy about the life you have because you are perfectly designed. And it worked. It was something he would say to himself to feel encouraged and feel enough. And we felt like we wanted to pass that message on to the rest of the world. Hmm. What was it like uh, working with your dad on this? Uh, (laughs) Well... (laughs) It was fun, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, but he's still a dad at the end of the day. So I mean, like he's telling me, Jason, you need to be done by this day. You need to pick out this artist. Like you need to. Like he was on it. That was he was doing the dad part, which you would think, like, hey, tap out of that. You know? What I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're my dad. No, I like, tapped into that hard. I'm like, <laughs> no. We have deadlines here. That we, we have deadlines. You know yeah. what I mean? I knew he was going to be able to step up to the challenge, but this is his first time becoming working with a publisher, doing yeah. this, and I was like, you might not know what it takes. And so I was like, you're not about to embarrass me or embarrass yourself. <laughs> no, seriously. And so I stepped in hard into dad mode on this one, but he showed up and showed out. Yeah. So I am perfectly designed. What do you hope young readers take away from that mantra? Well, I mean, for me, because um, I am young, okay, um, <laughs> is the biggest thing is really, you know, right now we live in an age where you turn on the television, you go on social media, and everyone tells you that you're not enough, that you don't look good, that something about you needs to change. And I want them to know that you don't have to believe that. You can understand that you are beautiful the way you are, but I think one of the biggest things a part of that perfectly designed that we all are is the ability to ask for help. Mm. So if you're in a space where you're like, I don't feel good about me, but I want to learn how to do something that's going to make me feel better, ask someone for help. And I think that's great. You just had to do the dad thing right now. Right. <laughs> so that's another mantra that he has for us. It's plan, do, ask for help. Yeah. I and you just have to bring it one right with yeah. the other one. I see. I see. Well, can either of you remember the, the most recent time that you actually had to use this mantra for yourself? I'm perfectly I'm, designed. I yeah. use it to this day. I use it yeah. Literally every day. I woke up and had to tell myself that I'm perfectly designed because I had a couple bags under my eyes because we were working a little late last night. So it's like, hold on, let me just kind of get in my head. Yeah. I I, I would say for me, you know, um, it's something I use all the time. But like, you know, I've gotten a lot of backlash because I was kind to someone who had a different political affiliation than me. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I kind of had to reevaluate, like, should I be kind to people who have different views than me? And then I was like, no, I am. And I realized that part of my perfect design is that I have the ability to reach out to those who are different and shouldn't be ashamed of doing that. Mm. Well, speaking of that moment, you actually, recently this week, you, you clarified that you um, aren't actually friends with Sean Spicer 
So, so what changed for you? I mean, well, was it part of that thinking? No, it's not. It's not that. So, when it, this originally happened, we weren't friends. I didn't know him mm. at all. So, I just I met him briefly, and then right after that, while doing the show, we had really good conversations, and we did become friends during the mm. show. Um, and so, what changed for me is I got to have real conversation with him and really talk about how he affected the world, like the lies that he told, how it hurt people, how it hurt me. And it helped him to grow and see like my point of view. Am I thinking this man is gonna change? No, like, you know, but I'm hoping that I'm planting seeds mm. that can help start to flourish and be better. And, and that's all you could ask in this day and age. Mm. Well, thinking about those planting seeds, what, what kind of conversations do you have with someone? Like what kind of stuff did you talk about with him in terms of LGBTQ issues? You know, well, it, it wasn't just specifically LGBTQ issues where I would say, um, you know, this is what's going on in the media. This is what you are mm -hmm. because we're on a dance competition show. Let's be honest. So like there wasn't a lot of space for that. But it was a lot of, hey, you know, there's things that you, the administration you've said that don't support LGBT families. You've met me and met my son's talked to us and said how much we're such a beautiful family. When you talk about these type of things, you're talking about us. So it's those type of ways I'm having conversations. Mm -hmm. They weren't direct like, this policy on this day was, because that 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 wouldn't work. You know, people get shut down. Um, there was days that I had friends who came to visit me on the show who were trans or um, gender non-conforming and I would introduce them to him and make sure I say, hey, this person identifies as trans and you know, they also serve in the military. and. Mm -hmm to let him know these are the people you'd be attacking as someone who else was in the military. And so it's, it's more so about introducing him to my life and having those conversations and helping him to see when you make these comments, these are the real people they affect. Mm. Now you mentioned that uh, you, know, you had a moment of kind of asking yourself, like, do I need to, to adjust or course correct over being kind um, to this person, did you foresee the kind of public reaction to all of this that no. happened? No, I did not. I mean, the minute that my son started getting death threats mm. was the worst moment for me mm -hmm. because a lot of it wasn't coming from the other side, it was coming from my own side. Mm -hmm. And it hurt my heart, it made me, I mean, I, I'm kind of getting emotional now because I just never thought in my heart that people would look at me and think as a black gay man living in America that I was somehow Part, part of the enemy. Like mm -hmm. I'm part of the, I'm trying to fight because I understand what's going on. And it hurt my heart that it was happening, but I realized just like what happened to Ellen, you know, she sat down next to George Bush and she got all this backlash. Mm -hmm. We're in a place where people are really feeling uh, on edge. And if you feel encouraged enough to speak to someone and reach out to them who has different political views, you should do so because I felt it. And I will never feel bad for doing what I know is right in my heart. Mm. Well, you did mention it is a dance competition. So yes. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what was it like watching your dad compete on the show? <laughs> so what I used to tell everyone, it's like watching a unicorn. Like, you know, like it's like <laughs> spotting a unicorn. Because my dad, he does a couple things he never does that I never see at least, swim and dance. And so when I saw him dancing at this level in this competition, I thought it was so amazing. Because I'm king of the two-step. I like a two-step, <laughs> you know, I like, give me a beer and a two-step and a I'm happy. There. You know what I mean? That's it. I you mean, know, they have I you a little out twerk. there going all across the dance All of it. Yeah, I just, yeah. I, and you know, it was like, I think they thought because I was younger or maybe because I was black, they thought I had more rhythm. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but they were being very tough on me. I was like, I don't dance. And so it's the same thing. Like if I won a swimming competition, I'd be like, I don't swim. Sorry. So it's <laughs> not happening. Support you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Do either of you have any predictions of the outcome of the show, or are you hopeful about anyone in particular? Um, for, for me, James Vanderbeek, just because he was my high school, middle school crush, you know, I'm, I wanted to be on Dawson's Creek and be like, hi, James. And now we're I friends. I was allowed to watch Dawson's Creek. I, really? Robbed, yes. You missed yeah. out. It was, it was a show. It was a show. And then um, Fifth Harmony is probably one of the Allie best, Brooke. you know, female groups, and Allie Brooke is on there. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have any predictions? Uh, anyone you're rooting for? I was gonna say either Allie Brooke, because she's an amazing mm -hmm. dancer, or uh, Kale. I think he's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um, Karamo, you have been very busy lately because Netflix just dropped the special episodes of uh, Queer Eye in Japan. And I was wondering, did you have to uh, kind of 
prepare anything in particular uh, for the cultural differences between working with people here versus there? Yeah, we were, it was for me and for the rest of the guys, we made sure that we were very respectful of the cultural differences. So we worked with a team in Japan who told us like, this is what you do when you walk into the house. You take off your shoes, this is how you bow, this is what you say. Because we wanted to make sure that we didn't come in there as these five brash Americans and mm-hmm. be like, we know better, we're gonna change your culture. You know, we, we were like, not going to happen. We wanted to be so respectful and it worked out because people could see that we were taking the initiative to learn the language, to eat the food, to try mm-hmm. things, to do things, to show like, Yes, we're experts in our field, but we are not trying to disrespect your culture, and it worked. Mm, well, you mentioned the other guys, and speaking of them, two of them were here at BuzzFeed last week, and they wanted to give you a special me- a special message. So Which two? Karamo, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry, there are Skittles and Coca-Colas in the snack room. Lol. But we're so proud of your book. We love you, and yay, Jason, you can't help but that you're an amazing author. Congrats. Yes, Karamo. yes, yes. yes. Why are they so beautiful? <laughs> so cute. Oh Thank God. you guys. Is that your like snack of choice? Literally, I walked in here and my fiance who's here was like, is there a Coca-Cola? I mean, for right away. Literally, right when we walked in here. I know I had the diet of a four-year-old with no <laughs> parent parental supervision, but I don't care. I love Skittles. I love Starburst. I love Coca-Cola. It's starting to work its way on me. Is it really? I am so snacky. I love a good snack. Moderation. Yeah. But look how cute they are. They were yeah. very what cute. What a little cute yeah. couple. Aww. Well, listen, I could easily keep talking to you both, but thank you so much for joining me. Thank, oh, you. thank you for having and us. please, everyone, pick up the new book, I Am Perfectly Designed, I'm out perfectly today. I Am Perfectly Designed. There it is. I Am Perfectly Designed <laughs> is out now in bookstores. Up next, Zach and I read your tweet. Welcome back, y'all. It's now time for Add Us. And that was such a good conversation. Yeah. So much tea. I mean, we talked about everything. So Sean Spicer stuff. You know, that just happened last night. So it's nice to hear some clarity, some ideas and perspective on how to talk across party lines Mm -hmm. with people. So, yeah. All right. Well, during our conversation about Emma Watson self-partnering, Sini tweeted, those of us coupled up, let's not forget where we came from. Singleness is valuable. And I say I completely agree with this. Uh, I think I learned the most about myself during the times when I was single. I've learned too much about myself. <laughs> I'm just you know, really good at you, it. I'm you like, saw yeah. an opening to drag yourself, and you, know, you took it. If you can't so, drag yourself, who can you drag? That is very what fair. I say, and I think RuPaul said it first. So. Yeah. Well, thank you to our guests, Miriam Elder, Joe Sanka, Senator Sherrod Brown, Joshua Dela Cruz, Anthony Ramos, Karamo, Jason Brown, and Haley Steinfeld. So many great people. Well, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day.